What does healing mean to you? Becoming more godlike by knowing scripture and praying, being loving and kind, helping other people. Voices, the mental health podcast, raising unanswered questions, sharing unanswered prayers. We are faith-based, peer-led, story-driven, and stigma-breaking. I am Tony Roberts. I am Eric Riddle. And we are Revealing Voices. Tony, it's episode 49. It is. We're recording this um, Studio E on a, uh, a day where the snow is melting, the ice and the snow is melting from a winter storm we've had. Yeah. Grateful for that. The sun is shining. I've been on two long walks this weekend. Yeah. It's one of those yeah, blue weekend. sky and white covered good. snow type of weekends. Which good time uh, to get out. I, I've among been, my favorite times of the year to be able to it hike is, around. It is a good time, as long as you don't uh, trip on the ice, but you, you can take precautions. Um, yeah, I've been a, a little bit in the winter doldrums, but I have a, a number of projects coming up that uh, should pull me out of that. I've got uh, the relaunch of my Wind Despair Meets Delight second edition, mm-hmm. which has bonus material of my parents' death during 2020 and yes. my psychiatric stay. These may seem like gloom and doom stories, but there's actually a lot of hope and resurrection yeah, material. Very significant life experiences you've added to the book. Yeah, very yeah. significant. And uh, I will be reading that on the narrated uh, audible version. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the relaunch will be March 15th through the 20th. During that time, there'll be a free um, e-book, Kindle. So I'm looking forward to that. I have a launch team on the ready. Good. And... uh, uh, and then following the launch, uh, I will be moving my way into a third book. Yeah. Um, and this is a love letters book, as yes. we're calling it, uh, which is love letters between people who have brain illness and those who care for them. Uh, in some cases, the two will be writing letters together, or they will both be included in the in the book. Yeah. In some cases, just one or the other. I think it's a fantastic um, idea. We've gotten a lot of good feedback, and we've been including it, publishing it. I, I have one coming out in um, my blog tonight yeah. the, from a woman in... California. Mm -hmm. It's gotten a good, and if we have, I've been doing it on my blog, if we have good response that we continue to have a good response, then I will look to publish it in an ebook form and perhaps print. 
Well, I will be in there, as will Jen, and we will keep it under the 1,000-word limit. That's right. That's right. That's the only parameter I've set, Uh, and that it be directly written to the loved one, Uh, so it would be in the second person. Dear Jen. It wouldn't be. Yeah, dear Jen. You are amazing. Just a letter. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you've had some big things coming uh, on on your path, so to speak. I think we'll leave a lot of that for the final episode when Brandon Andrus joins us here in Studio E. Uh, But I I did want to talk here in this intro about my time in southern Indiana in December. I took a couple days off before Christmas, which I've never done before. I mean, often you just kind of work, 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 and then you're off. And I I wanted to take that time uh, to get away and have some silence and so I've gone one other time before to St. Minard Arch Abbey, uh, which is in St. Minard, Indiana. And it's only about half an hour from where my parents grew up in Tell City, Indiana. And that's an Arch Abbey uh, Catholic uh, campus. They have a seminary there, and the accommodations are wonderful. And you can go to the hours when the monks are singing and going through services, and it was a really good time. I also, during that time, went to Hemlock Cliffs, which is uh, a part of Hoosier National Forest, and just a beautiful place. There's a really nice uh, waterfall in there, and it just so happened the night before I went, there was a, a storm. It was actually the storm that caused all the tornadoes in Kentucky, Uh, That was also, I mean, a really bad storm in southern Indiana. Uh, No tornadoes. But anyway, there was a lot of rain, and the waterfall was strong, and it was a cold morning when I went. I was the only person around there, and I had a really good experience. I, I actually climbed up to the top of that waterfall, and on that cliff are where the hemlocks are. And so you're in this forest, and a lot of it, is deciduous and the leaves are gone, but here around the waterfall are all these giant hemlocks. And I was there above the waterfall and I just hung out for probably an hour and I wrote a lot of haikus and actually thought a lot about my, I mean, this whole trip was kind of like a getting back to my roots kind of experience because my great grandfather who I never knew lived in English, Indiana, which is only like 15 minutes from Hemlock Cliffs. Mm-hmm. And so just being in that space just makes you wonder, like, did he visit this place? You know, I've got to think at that time, I mean, he died in like 1946, I think. I've got to think during that time, Hemlock Cliffs would have been like a big destination, you know, to go out in nature. And so to be there, think about my ancestors in a way, and just reflect on you know how humble my roots are, was was just a really good life giving experience for me. Great. And after St. Minard, I went down to Owensboro, Kentucky, where I lived for about sixteen years, and my friend has just bought a house literally across the street from where I grew up. And so I stayed with Cyrus 
um, for a night and was reconnecting with neighbors who were still on the street. And I mean, it was just an incredible time. Uh, I walked the Ohio River Walk down downtown Owensboro right before I came home, and I really can't imagine a better use of my time there. Uh, I, I was going through some rough stuff prior to going down there, a lot of transitions going on with my work, and I just needed to have a little bit of a break, and it really helped me reset and put me in a good spot uh, leading into the holidays and Christmas, and really a turning point for me. And, mm-hmm. and I, I would say the silence and solitude that I could experience at, at the Arch Abbey, the reflection. I visited the gravesite of my great-grandfather. I did not know where he was buried, and I just went to a cemetery in English, Indiana, and I walked all the way around it. Right before I got in my car, I saw it. Mm-hmm. And, man, it, it just felt really good. Great. I wrote 41 haikus. <laughs> I was on fire with my writing down there and was just thinking about ways to share haiku a little bit more. And I've uh, developed a little bit of an art concept that's sitting across the table from us yes. over there. Maybe some garden art in my future, you know. Yeah. That was good. You know, thought a lot about just my commitment to nature and helping as much as I can here in Columbus, Indiana and beyond to make this a really special place that that loves native plants and mm-hmm. biodiversity. Great. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of ancestry, we've got my parents on the show That's today. Right. It's your dad, Bruce, and mom, Sally. Yeah. And I have gotten to know them in the past five to seven years um let's see 2014 yeah more often in the past couple of years and during that time i i saw your dad go through a a significant episode yeah um, of depression although it also included an episode of mania. Yeah. He was really in a bad way when he first started coming to our faithful friends group. Um, but he has sought good treatment. He's found, you know, uh, through some trial and error and like a lot of us experience with mental illness, just keep pursuing the path that leads to health and He's uh, he's now one of the leaders of of our uh, faithful friends group, and doing a great job. I, I yep. rely on him um, during my own difficulties, and he's come through some some tough stuff and doing much better. Yes, I did want to give a little bit of background before the interview because we don't talk about a whole lot during the interview uh, about Dad uh, and his retirement. He, he really struggled with the decision to retire. And I'm not going to do a strict correlation between his most recent bout with mania and depression and the retirement, but I, I can definitely say that was part of what was going on in his life. And so I would just, I guess, encourage our listeners who are thinking through retirement to to know that's a, a major life change and mm. to take care of your mental health during that time, mm-hmm. right? I, I think oftentimes we just want to go through life's experiences and think we're just going to 
power on through and enjoy mm-hmm. the ride, but retirement is a massive life change. Yeah. And dad was a great doctor. He was in practice for over 35 years, and it was a real struggle for him to make that decision. And he is now retired, and I think as you'll hear in this episode, really happy. Mm-hmm. But it, it took a while to get through this. Yeah. And Tony, thank you for being so close to Dad during this time. I know he really well, appreciates your friendship. It, it goes both ways. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've benefited from our relationship, and so have the people in our group. Yeah, that, that was one of the things that we did talk about, your, your father and I, that he would not mind me sharing. Just when you do retire, and it, it's true for both men and women, but historically it's true perhaps a bit more for men that, you know, our jobs are what we do. I mean, it's the first thing out when yeah. you meet someone, What you know, what do you do? He has found a way to challenge channel some of uh even even though doctors are 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 not we we don't like hire doctors as a group it's it's a peer group um he still with the wealth of his information and experience people will look to him as a person yeah uh, who who has had these experiences and benefits their mental health and their journey. Yeah. The last thing I want to say about Dad was in our family tradition, we have someone who leads a Christmas devotional every year. In a couple of years, Dad did the devotional, and he talked about how as he was winding down his career, he started working at a mental health unit over in Bloomington, for his devotional, he talked about how he was so thankful to be able to serve as a doctor at a mental health unit over in Bloomington, Indiana, for about a year, and how life had just come full circle for him. Because at the beginning of his career, he had to go to a hospital for his own uh, you know, mental illness. And to be able to, 40 years later, 40-plus years later, be able to give back and have that kind of compassion and care for people, you know, brought him to tears, um, you know, that Christmas as he was sharing with gratitude just his ability to have this long career. So, mm-hmm. Dad, uh, thank you for your commitment to the family and to your profession and for persevering, you know, through living with bipolar for mm-hmm. the majority of your life. You you are really a role model and – I'm really glad we were able to interview you. And mom, mom is also on the episode. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your support of dad and the family and being such a rock, you know, through, throughout my life. Well, Tony, we have two esteemed guests in Studio E this evening. That's right. We have... Bruce and Sally Riddle, part of the Riddle team, the Rippy Riddle uh, legacy that we have here at uh, yes. Revealing Voices, otherwise known as Eric's parents. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. We've been talking about having them on for a while. That's right. And with me uh, wrapping up the show here uh, after episode 50, we were kind of running out of time. That's right. We've got to get it in. Yeah. 
And so the, this is a long time coming. You know, yes. we, we had the questions out to them in like November, mm-hmm. I think. And then just with the holidays and COVID craziness, we've we've delayed. So they've had a lot of time to really think through these questions and have really great responses. That's right. Yeah. But we're glad that you all devoted a night to come down and join us. And we'll, we'll try to get done before 8.30 when IU plays. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> so Dr. Bruce Riddle and the esteemed Sally Riddle, we're talking about uh, our, our family's history with mental health struggles and a lot of dad's history and, and mom, you supporting dad through the years. We wanted to start by dad sharing his story of when dad you really first started to sense that you know you might need to seek treatment Mm. or seek professional help that was when i was a teenager i was a freshman in high school i have an older brother four years older and he'd gone to college and for some reason my parents started arguing a lot right in front of me and it was very stressful. I remember I would go to bed many times and pray, and I I can remember my prayer exactly. God, please make them stop. Please let me tell Mark, my brother, and please take me to a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. I think I knew I was stressed out, but I didn't think of a diagnosis. And at that time, because that would have been like the early 60s? Like 66 to 70. I'm guessing psychiatric care wasn't as ready, available, or thought of as an option for a teenager. I, 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 I don't know. I didn't know of any. I just knew there were psychiatrists. And, and yeah. They would help people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how long did that prayer and that experience of stress go on? Was it? It came went, and went or it went on it went on for a long time they even would argue and we'd come to visit right in front of you kids so the arguing was a real trigger for you your, yeah your parents arguing mm-hmm. and mom, it was kind of yeah. warped because kind of after that was all over i asked my mom why they argued so much and her response was well that's what people who are in love do and my response to that was that's sick yeah so mom you and dad knew each other in high school probably around the time dad started feeling that way how aware early in your friendship or relationship did you have a sense that something might be wrong? I did not know anything about that, actually. He didn't tell me that. The, the first I knew was when we had you kids, that there was that issue. Stepping back from that, though, did you notice mental health struggles he was going through that were just evident but not related to the... No, I, I really did not uh, have any clue until... He started his internship and rather quickly got depressed, very anxious about how he was taking care of patients, and then that fairly quickly went into depression. That's really the first time I recognized that he had some kind of mental health issue. Yeah, I don't think it would have been visible back then. I wasn't running around worrying about it or 
Mm -hmm. It was just when it would occur, I would have a reaction. And, and you were praying for psychiatric care as a pretty young teenager, but you didn't have any of that care until after you'd gone through college and were in med school and were a... After med school, it was in my internship, the year after med school. That's when you personally first had an experience with the psychiatric yes. healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Did you know of anybody in your circle of relationships, either family or friends or other residents or co-students, you know, students who were seeing professional help and having success or not getting along with it that made you think that would be a good option or worth exploring? No, I can't re recall mm -hmm. knowing anyone who had had psychiatric treatment. We fast forwarded probably seven or eight years from when you were first experiencing that anxiety to when you were in your internship. Right. Can you express more of what the, I guess the, the moment was that led you to your first psychiatric appointment? Okay, um, <clears throat> the first month in July I was assigned to the emergency room and I was seeing patients that I was not trained to see gynecology, pediatrics, mm -hmm. and, and a lot of others. And I got concerned that I wasn't doing the right thing, but I don't think that was the case actually. I just got anxious and I was depressed mm -hmm. immediately and I didn't sleep and I think it was two or three days later uh, that I saw the psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. Mark, my brother, happened to know this psychiatrist and I didn't know that Mark wanted to be a psychiatrist so he had a, had a relationship with this guy. He was the uh, chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at IU and he got me in right away. He put me on some medication, I don't know what it was, and I just got worse and then he hospitalized me. Mm -hmm. How did both sets of your parents respond? I think there was very little discussion of it. I don't think it was talked of much. Did, did, they, did they know you were in the hospital? Yeah, when my parents came to visit, I just remember my mother saying, Bruce, snap out of it. And I think that's what people want. Yeah. yeah. I think there was stigma, a lot of stigma back then, and I think they had trouble relating to it. Mom, did you tell your parents? Oh, absolutely. And my, my parents uh, were very supportive, but I don't think they knew what to do with it because they're, as far as I know, they'd never had to deal with that with anybody in our family. I don't know if they had friends that had mental health issues. I don't recall them ever talking about it, so I don't know. They they would be there at a drop of a hat, but they didn't really know what to do with this. I don't want to say they weren't supportive. They would be there if I needed them, but they didn't really talk a whole lot about it. Mm -hmm. I was in the hospital for four months. This was after your inter This was right at the start of your internship, though, not during medical school. Right. Yeah. And they tried me on all kind of medication, and I went to all kind of therapy, and nothing seemed to work. I think one thing that helped me, it was interesting, is they finally would let me 
leave and go over to the Union Building at the Med Center where there was an Olympic-sized indoor pool, mm -hmm. and I would swim laps for exercise, and I got up to like 100 laps. Wow. Uh, <laughs> wow. And I think that was one thing that helped me improve. After I got out, I then inquired to the head of the training program and the internal medicine program uh, about me coming back. And they said, we've eliminated your position. You can't be a doctor that sees patients. Mm -hmm. You have to do something like uh, radiology or uh, pathology. Mm -hmm. So I was there without any, I hadn't had enough training to go on, uh, but they weren't going to let me go on there. So the two of us went to the administrator of the hospital and told him the situation, and he told them to give me a, a year, and then I could leave. So in other words, they let him finish his internship yeah. so then he could find a residency somewhere else. Right. So there was a path. It just sort of like a probationary path or something. Well, it wasn't going to be at Methodist Hospital. It was going to but be but else. at least he had the internship finished so he could then do start a, a residency in a mm -hmm. program somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, he was in internal medicine. Mm -hmm. And every month you do something different. So I had a month of radiology and and I was in the pathology department and for a whole month I was assigned uh, to do an autopsies, which mm -hmm. I had no interest in. It was a terrible experience. Mm -hmm. But you know, there's some blessing in that because in the meantime, he was continuing to get better from his depression. Sure. And you can see that, you know, I did a month of pathology, don't like it. I did a month of radiology, mm -hmm. don't like it. So it gave him uh, a reason to continue to pursue what he really wanted. At the same time, he was healing from his depression. And the whole time I was in the hospital, uh, they kept telling me, you're going to be okay, you're going to be fine, you can go back to being a doctor, you can do anything you want. Hmm. Which I didn't believe in for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then I finally did when I came out of depression, I felt pretty good. Mm -hmm. That's really encouraging that you were getting that much reinforcement to be able to continue in a very demanding profession. Mm -hmm. I thought they were very good at IU. Yeah. A back then, they were very good. For the, mm -hmm. for the they, time. They of... took good care of me. They told me what to do. I mean, I didn't visit a whole lot because I, there were times I'd go, he didn't even know who I was. Yeah. You know, so I would stay away, and I had a full-time job working in ICU at Methodist. Mm -hmm. So I continued doing what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So they were very, very good. Uh, when we were in Detroit, we hadn't sold our house in Indianapolis, and Sally stayed home and worked. And I rented a room from a woman, and after a few weeks, I remember waking up one night, and my brain was just spinning with positive thoughts and and kind of uncontrolled just like when I was really depressed and so I was kind of ecstatic 
that, oh my gosh, I'm bipolar. There's medication that can help that. And so I was excited and I went into work and I ran around the hospital to the nurses' stations. I think I told them I was bipolar and and, (laughs) and all this stuff. And then I got sent to the head of the department who was very understanding and referred me to a psychiatrist that day who diagnosed it and started me on lithium and it was reversed really quickly and I don't know if I missed any work. So that, that, that was your accurate diagnosis? Mm-hmm. You, you were able to have that insight? Yeah. Yeah. You, you didn't walk away from your four months with a diagnosis of bipolar? You walked away from that with a diagnosis of severe depression. Right. And then this happened, you had a manic episode in Detroit, and then the Detroit doctor diagnosed you. Okay. And the major depression, the initial depression, it's called major depression, is like the depression of bipolar disorder. Bipolar 2. Yeah. That was a blessing. So you've been put in the right place at the right time with the right things to say. Risky, but mm-hmm. you got it done. It could go a lot of ways being a medical professional among peers. You know, in your case, it sounds like people really rallied around you. Yeah. It seems like in other circumstances, people could really like could been, alienate you. Could have been risky. You had a lot of support. They were very accepting. I didn't feel like there was a stigma or anything. Yeah. And th- that's there. great, Dad. So, Dad, you were really a heroic effort to get through all of that and to obtain your, your goal, you know, with a very significant roadblock, obviously, in the middle of that. Really glad to hear that Uncle Mark was able to help you out, too, to find some really nice care, and you're in the hands of some good people. So after you finished all of your education and your residency, uh, you settled in in Owensboro, Kentucky, and I was like a little over a year old, and you got right into your first full-time doctor role there. Did did you share your diagnosis with your, your medical partners in Owensboro, and how open were you with sharing with um, people outside well, of the family? <clears throat> after what I went through at Methodist, and I was highly discriminated against, I didn't think I wanted to risk having that happen again. And so I vowed that I wasn't going to tell anybody about it. Yeah. And the only time it came up in medical practice was if their application form asked for uh, any chronic illnesses. I, I would put it down then, but I don't think there was ever any discussion with anyone about about how I did or what it involved. You know, when when he first went into the hospital, when he was an intern, I worked at Methodist Hospital as an ICU nurse. And so, you know, then I was able to tell a couple, two or three of my closest friends who I also worked with there mm. because all of a sudden, you know, he's not there. So, you know, uh, and I felt I had such a good relationship with them that that was a great support system for me, plus, you know, IU health people. Uh, I had one friend who 
um, had a, another good friend whose mother had had a severe depression, and she kept saying to me, you know, I know that he's going to get through this. I know. So she was a huge, huge support for me. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to be able to talk to somebody. Yes. That's imperative for anybody. You have to have that. So when we were looking for places to start a practice, we wanted to get closer to our parents. So we looked at Evansville, Indiana, a practice there, and... um it looked really pretty good, and this was before he recognized that, you know, when you go into practice, you don't need to tell every single detail about your mental health. You can reveal some of it, but you don't need to go into the nitty-gritty. And so I think he scared them. Mm-hmm. And so a place that we thought mm-hmm. uh, we had a chance, we didn't because I think he— told him a little bit too much. I think you can tell too much, but I think you do need to tell some. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to be open about it because, you know, then you're essentially saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to hide something. There's no reason to hide mental illness. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no reason to hide it. It's better to let people know and to see how well you can do because you never know when one of them may have a family member or someone that, and they can say, well, you know, my partner does great. And he has it. So you you have to be able to talk about it. So after that experience with Evansville, then he didn't want to talk about it. So then I couldn't talk about it. Mm -hmm. So when we moved to Owensboro, I couldn't talk to any of my friends that I got to know there, you know, because we just didn't. It's it's not a healthy way to deal with it, really. And not until this most recent time, two years ago, basically now, was I able to tell our friends here, you know, mm-hmm. and there were many times when I would hear comments from some of them, and they're, it's out of ignorance. People are really very ignorant. They'll say, oh, that person has bipolar, and I will say, excuse me, I didn't reference Bruce, but I'd say, no, they have an anger management problem. Just because somebody mm-hmm. flies off uh, you know, the handle uh, does not mean they're bipolar. There's so much ignorance with it. And mm-hmm. and I couldn't educate anybody because I couldn't really, uh, to some degree I could, but not totally. And when you can add that personal touch, people tend to um, understand or believe you more. It really wasn't until you were 40 years in to the diagnosis where you really felt like you could speak about your diagnosis with your friends Yeah. and in the church. Exactly. How has that changed your relationships with with the people you've shared with? Well, I can speak. I don't think Go ahead. it's changed. I think it's been good. I would say it's been better. You know, our small group at church totally embraced us above and beyond. Uh, our closest friends, same thing. They could not have been any better. That's another reason. I think people that really love you will embrace you no matter what and help you however they can. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you, in turn, can teach them some things that they may not know about mental illness, and they can ask questions. And So it's been good. It's been good. Mm-hmm. So, Dad, you said it hasn't really changed a lot, and I guess there's really two parts to that question there is how does it change your relationship with the person, but there's also how does it change kind of you and your confidence and your 
comfort level and maybe self-esteem being able to be more free in I'd in say disclosing. it really increased my comfort level. I felt free to say whatever. I wasn't trying to hide anything with them. Mm-hmm. They knew when I was doing worse or better, and that was good, and that made them supportive. Yeah. And just, just so our listeners know, I mean, a, a lot of this time where you became more open is very almost nearly aligned with COVID lockdown. You did oh. go to the hospital nearly at the same time that COVID was starting to break out. So Yes. Can you speak to that at all? I think it caused isolation, which was a problem because you just weren't getting out. You couldn't go places or you were afraid to go places. And there's nothing worse really for depression than being isolated alone and not doing anything. It sounds like being able to be more free with talking about what was going on though was a bit of a bomb mm-hmm. to the global isolation system if, if you weren't able to share what was going on personally that's its own form of isolation per- right. personally right so i've got to think being able to be open in those moments where you could be with people virtually or otherwise must have been really timely in a way Bruce is one of the leaders we now have at uh, Faithful Friends, our mental health support group weekly. We had a period where we met on Zoom and didn't have the face-to-face contact that um, I think is beneficial to bring out of isolation. We're now using precautions and coming together in person. You know, Bruce has really stepped forward as a a strong leader, as has uh, several others. And we've got a a small but core group uh, of people uh, really taking strides and, and making improvements in the midst of the pandemic. Mm hmm. It's been, I think it's been a great blessing for me. I want to ask, how has living with a mental health diagnosis impacted your faith journey? And that's a question for both of you. This last time when I got depressed and was hospitalized, it was horrible again. And I just couldn't get out of it. They had tried me on different medications, and I had 23 ECT treatments. I had a lot of therapy, and I just wasn't getting better. So I decided that God was the only one that could take care of me. Mm-hmm. And so I started three devotionals and reading Scripture and writing down all the Scripture that meant a lot to me. Mm-hmm. and I had more faith and I had trust that God would take care of it. That's great, Dad. Yeah. Okay, so uh, when he was diagnosed at a Methodist, like I said, I went to visit him, and sometimes he wouldn't even know where I was, who I was. And let's see, we 
uh, had been married three years at that point, I think, and having no inkling that there was any mental health issue, you know, and then all of a sudden your husband is extremely depressed, you know, doesn't recognize you. You know, I remember one night driving home and I was just screaming to God. Now, I, I wasn't screaming mad. I was just screaming, you know, I got to have some help here. I got, you know, something. I remember doing that. Um, you know, and like I say, I had this one friend who was so, so supportive, really more so than my family. Um, again, because she had a background mm -hmm. and understood. So this time, this, you know, two years ago, by now my faith journey is so much more than it was then. And I have six prayer warriors that those women are on it immediately, prayed all the way through it, checked on me all the time. Plus our small group, plus other people that aren't those six people, plus my family. I would say I really believe God would get us through this. You just don't know uh, how long it's going to take. But I knew he'd get through it. Because I, I believe that God would do it. And and the amazing thing, I had a, I've made a list, and I don't have it here tonight. The things that ha are better now because he's gone through that depression probably wouldn't have happened if he hadn't. And one of them is his relationship with his brother. It is so much better now than it was before. That's huge. Mm -hmm. You know, even you four kids, I think, understand more now than you did then. His his faith journey, um, where he is now compared to where he was two years ago, big difference. God got his attention, and it's a beautiful thing. And when you listen to everything we have to say, you could see God had his hand on us the entire time. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. I remember when I was real depressed after getting home from the hospital and feeling suicidal at times, and then I would think, I can't give up on God as a reason why I wouldn't commit suicide. Because mm -hmm. that would mean lack of trust and faith. And so that was very helpful to me. I want to ask if you could reflect briefly about I also have a mental illness, and I have children who wrestle with mental health issues, and I know it impacts me deeply to see what they go through. Um, as you've seen Eric go through, and this leads especially the time when you're 18 to 30, mm -hmm. some of the depressed periods and the episodic uh, symptoms and uh, did you did you find how how did that impact you? So the question is, how did we deal with Eric's mental health issues? Yeah, was it helpful to, to have struggled with some yourself? Uh, was it more hurtful? Uh, was it what, what impact did it have? Well, I'll start out it helped me a lot having gone through it with Bruce. I'm also a nurse, but that just doesn't make you a mental health expert. 
it gives you some insight. I mean, I had some psychiatric nursing, so you have some theories about it. But living it is a whole nother thing, you know. And having lived through with him, it made it uh, easier to recognize and to know some things that absolutely are necessary. And Bruce was excellent with Eric. Uh, probably a little more patient than I was. Um, you know, I mean, he really, truly was excellent with Eric. It wasn't easy because Eric, you know, he was a kid. And, you know, you don't want to accept that you have any kind of illness. I don't care what kind it is, you know. And to recognize that this is something that you're going to deal with the rest of your life and recognizing that you need to take medicine the rest of your life is not something you accept like turning on a light switch. You know, it's something that develops over time. And so, you know, he'd do well and then he'd get off his medicine and then he wouldn't do well because he thought, well, and I'm okay. You know, and he might be okay for a little while and then, but that didn't last long, you know, and then we'd go through it again. And so, um, I think if he, if we had not gone through what Bruce had, we wouldn't have been near as patient and understanding and all the things that you need to be to deal with somebody that's really struggling. Because as his mom wanted to snap out of it, this, if you could snap out of it, you would. Nobody wants to feel that way, you know. So telling somebody that is useless. The main thing is you have to be there for them no matter what and just keep saying it's going to get better and it's going to get better. And it's just going to take time. Dealing with his depression, to some degree, was easier than dealing. I saw him manic once. And we went over to Bloomington because I think his roommate called us or something. And I mean, he really was very active. And I hadn't seen Bruce Manic because he was in Detroit when he had that manic episode. And I wasn't there, so I hadn't seen that. And we went over, and Eric was, you know, just uh, thought he could conquer the world. And I said to Bruce, he has to be in the hospital. I mean, because this can't go on. And so we talked to him and, and it, we just weren't getting anywhere, you know. And so we actually called the police to come get him. That was absolutely the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I remember we waited for them to come get him. They took him, I mean, he went with them and they took him to the hospital. We went to the hospital and he was older than 18, so, you know, I mean, uh, that makes it a little more difficult. And I just remember knowing that it was the right thing to do, knowing it was the only way we could get him there, but it was extremely difficult, and I, I, I'm sure I cried halfway home from Bloomington. And so I don't remember this hospitalization. Where was that? Okay. It was my senior year, yeah. second semester after spring break. I don't have any more to say on that subject, but we're talking about family history, mm -hmm. and my brother is bipolar also, and I don't have any other siblings, and he's a psychiatrist, and just a few years ago, we were talking, and we'd both come to the conclusion that our father was bipolar, but not treated, and his mother and his brother were too, just based on what they were like when we were around them. So it's a strong family history. But I was the first to have a diagnosis, so I was the first to have trouble with it. 
So we didn't know I was bipolar at the beginning. So our signature question is, what does healing mean to you? Can I um, say one other thing? Because one of these other questions that you gave us, I, I think, is worthy of being talked about. Yes. And I don't think that we did. What advice do you have for spouses yes. or partners? Oh, yes. that, that one. Um, who are just beginning to live with a, a loved one yeah. who has a mental health diagnosis. I just think... It, it helped me so much to have that. Again, I, I know I've beat this drum, but the friend that knew somebody that had mental illness and got through it, her talking to me, you know, uh, I think it is imperative to have someone that knows, understands that you can talk to and you, you not having to do it on your own because that's too hard and it's not necessary. I mean, there are people out there that are going through the same thing you are. You just need to get hooked up with somebody. So I would encourage anybody that has a newly diagnosed relative with that to find a, either a support group or somebody to talk to that has been through it and can help you know what maybe some things to expect, um, how you've handled it, those kind of things, it's, it's huge. We could put a plug in for NAMI, Family to Family, or they've renamed it, but National Alliance on Mental Illness has a group to have people with loved ones who have a mental illness come together and have a lot of education and a lot of support and a lot of listening. And they're starting a new group here in Columbus where we are, and they're all over the world. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of fear fear and ignorance. I mean, I think some people are afraid to talk about it because they may see something in themselves that they really don't want to really look at that may be signs of a mental illness, and they just don't want to go there, so they don't. You know, that's the fear of it. I think there's just so much ignorance out there, uh, misinformation, and uh, that kind of thing. So you want to talk to someone that really knows what they're talking to, and I'm sure NAMI would be a great resource mm -hmm. for that. Well, I think culturally we've been so silent really up until really probably the last 20 years or so that it's mm -hmm. like there's not been a lot of ease and conversation to even find out who those people are who could support you because it's just not yeah. even spoken about, you know. And I, I do think that that is changing a lot just based on conversations I hear much more casually than you have ever heard 20, 20 years ago, which is really good. Yeah. And talking about me a little bit, just my experience of, of growing up uh, with my own mental health struggles, it was really hard for me to hear the family history at the point in time where I was first starting to experience the symptoms. And so, and I, we've talked about this before, but just to, to put it out there on the podcast, it's like when you're at a low point and then you hear about the family history of of bipolar, it, it really feels very scary. Threatening. Yeah. Like you're in the middle of it and you didn't even know this was even a possibility. And, and so I made the decision with my children to share with them my history when I was in a good place. Because, I mean, I, I had some times there when they were young where I was 
I was hospitalized, you know, and I, I wanted to wait until I was in a good place, but they were still young for me to share my history and my diagnosis. Hopefully that's helpful. You know, I, I haven't really asked them recently what that means to them, but I, I will tell you, we, we were on vacation and we were driving when this happened and it was like they couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of laughing going on in the back seat like you're joking and I'm like no this is real this is the real deal I don't know if that's just where we're at as a culture now where people can feel a little more open to, to share you know I've got to think for you all you just wanted to think it would never be something any of us would deal with any of your children would mm -hmm. deal with you know, I, I don't know how much of that was in the back of your head as you were raising me or anyone else that this was possible. But cert certainly something I, you know, I, I recognize as a family history. And so with the children, with, you know, my kids, it was like, well, put the family history out there just so it's like they understand it's, it's a thing. And they'd be more aware of what's happening if they were going into it. And I can have dialogue about my own experiences and make it a little more of just a normal thing to have a podcast about mental health. I mean, I, I couldn't have like done this and like kept it a secret from my kids. You know what I mean? I mean, it's that was a big moment for me. Um, and it took a lot of thought to decide when it was right. And I'm I'm glad it could be done with laughter, you know, mm -hmm. and and be kind of funny because it's mm -hmm. it's just a. A strange, strange condition. <laughs> well, I, I'd have to say I'm, I'm very proud of you, Eric, how you've handled it. Um, once you recognized that you had a mental illness and that you needed to seek help and take your medicine, because I think the way you've handled it and letting the kids know, being at Faithful Friends, uh, you give hope to people. People can say, well, if he can do it, I can do it. Bipolar isn't something, or other mental illnesses, isn't something that has to rob me of a, a fruitful life. You know, it's just something that I have to deal with. Other people have to deal with other things. And so I, I will deal with it, and I'll be an example to other people. It's a beautiful thing, really. I mean, I, I just can't imagine that doesn't give hope to a lot of people that hear you and see what you do. Yeah, it's, it's just the power of being comfortable enough and trusting people enough and trusting mm -hmm. God that when you are honest and disclose in a considerate manner that good things will happen. Mm -hmm. There's always a risk, but... I mean, as you know, we've talked about in the episode, you had to wait until you were in your 60s before you felt comfortable sharing, and now it's really put you in, in a better place and more confident mm -hmm. and comfortable place with your friendships and with family. Yeah, so we're, we're talking about our key question on the show. Yes, what does healing mean to you? This is the one you've had two months to think about. <laughs> Two years. Two, Two years. years. Yes. That goes way back. 
I thought about it for about five minutes. Okay. Because I think I came up with my answer yes. right away. And that is becoming more godlike. Yeah. And that's for the rest of my life. Yeah. Can you express in more detail what that what it means to you to be more godlike? Well, how would I achieve that? I think by knowing scripture and praying. Godlike is having just a lot of qualities of God, I think. Being loving and kind, helping other people, that's pretty much it. It sounds like you're talking about being more spiritually disciplined and Mm -hmm. understanding those spiritual practices that are are really life-giving for you and committing to doing those things. That's great, Dad. Okay, so being a nurse, you know, you think about healing. I looked at it that way first, I think, and you think, well, healing takes time. You cannot rush the process. You have to work it and, and do, do things uh, to get yourself into healing state. And if you rush it, a lot of times it doesn't work and you have to start over, you know. And sometimes you can learn a lot from that. But I, I had this yellow card um, that I got I think it's been a couple years ago, really. It looks worn out now. Um, at a mental health meeting or, or whatever, and I have listened to quite a few of the podcasts, and I knew this question was always asked. You know, it's always very interesting to me to hear the answers. Personally, for me, and I'm just going to read you what I wrote down. For me, when you think of healing, I think of the great physician, and that's Jesus. And he is the healer. And so this is what I wrote. Uh, When you come to a place where you fully submit to God, understanding he alone is in control and he will provide you with all you need no matter the circumstances. And any weakness you see in yourself, he will use for your good and his glory. So you need to let go and let God work in your life and healing will come. Thank you both. You're welcome. You're welcome. The riddles. It's been our pleasure. Yes. Yeah. Tony, I'm glad you could be a part of my family's life. Oh, it's been wonderful. They've been so supportive of me ever since you and I have been, uh, well, before we've been doing the podcast, but certainly... uh, Coming on board as uh, the podcast Indiegogo campaign developed Mm -hmm. and and just seeing them. It's been an inspiration to see how your family relates and you've carried that over to your children. And it's it's great. Great to have them on the show and share these last uh, penultimate recording sessions. Yeah, I'm I'm glad they could be on the show with me here as... I, I'm wrapping up my co-hosting responsibilities. Yes. You know, Mom said that she didn't know some of that story really from the o- onset of the interview when we were talking about. Yeah, when that Dad was first interesting. Had later symptoms. after the re- session was ended, yeah. she did say some of what your dad shared 
was news to her, right? <laughs> which was was interesting, and and it, I hope it was fruitful for the two of them right. together. I I believe it probably was. Yeah. They were high so. school sweethearts, and mom was like, "We were married before I had any idea." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and yeah. um, there were family dynamics going on that were um, just well, you know, and, and this relates to. Your your dad's illness as well. I mean, the, mm-hmm. it's hard for us now living in the era that we live in where, I mean, even though there's still great stigma about mental illness, there's also an openness. Right. It's talked about a lot more. But, um, you know, the, the, your, your parents lived in an era even a little before my era mm-hmm. where uh, uh, for – for safety's sake and for your own uh, ability to earn a living, you you had to keep a lot of secrets. Right. And you had to show a lot of discretion. It wasn't just a matter of lying about something or hiding. Mm-hmm. It, it, was, it was a matter of survival. And I think in Dad's case, it was almost like a re- repression. Mm-hmm. He didn't really consciously know there might be something wrong. Yeah. Yeah, and he really was managing to function. And uh, fortunately, in, in his case, per, perhaps fortunately, the um, diagnosis came about first as a depression, and he was able to function in um, a way that allowed him to continue to pursue his career mm-hmm. and his family life. And then later on, there was the bipolar diagnosis. Somehow, and it's really by God's grace that he was able to uh, navigate that with yes. your mom and keep discreet about it. Yeah, and... You know, speaking of my mother, you know, she really honored his need for privacy after he was really burnt. I've probably heard a little bit more about the whole Evansville job Mm -hmm. situation where he nearly had the job, you know, in the bag. After that, it was almost like never again, I think, for my dad. And my mom was like, I get it. You know, she was Mm -hmm. at that dinner, was firsthand experience of that rejection. Yeah. And the byproduct of that for her meant not having someone to confide in other than your dad. I mean, it was, it was their battle. Yes. And she had one person she mentioned on the show that she could talk to. At um, the very, in the seventies. And and after they moved. And then after Detroit. Yeah. There was probably 35 years where they were, silent yeah no one but family knew and i mean i was basically sworn to secrecy Mm -hmm. when i was told Mm -hmm. and that's a rough thing to to not share yeah it is and i know from my own history that there's pressure when you it's bad enough when you when you just choose to not open up to an, an individual or a group but when you feel the pressure of secrecy, it compounds that pressure and makes it hard to function. 
yeah. makes it very hard to function. And by God's grace, um, you know, and, and I think a tribute to your to your mom and your dad and and the family. Um, I mean, you've got a lot of healthy family traits mm-hmm. uh, that offset the brain illness of right. uh, uh, your dad and, and, and your diagnosis. Right. They didn't disclose for a long time. Mom honored that. And when dad had his most recent hospitalization, they made the joint decision to make it public within uh, the church community and their friends. And... I'm really glad we were able to touch on that in the interview to hear them talk about what a great benefit that's been for them, mm. uh, mm-hmm. both individually and I, I think also as a couple, uh, it's helped them grow closer together mm-hmm. as a husband and wife. And I'm sure it's been a blessing for the church and uh, for other family members who may have a diagnosis that they've not disclosed or yeah. other friends or, you know, I mean, I I know because I was the first one in my family to talk about publicly my, my illness. It has a, a domino effect in, in to the good, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I don't fault anyone who decides to be discreet for whatever reason because right. they have there's still plenty of reasons to not disclose yes yeah I, I think we've done a good job on this podcast to not fall on one side of the other you know it's always about discerning when it's appropriate yeah so it, it takes a, I think a lot of self-awareness to know when and with whom and how much to share mm-hmm uh, and that's true with a lot of things in life. Um, mm-hmm. and, and with mental health, it can be one of the most freeing things in the world when it's mm-hmm. done with care and with, with really the intention of that helping strengthen a relationship. Yeah. I, I know I've experienced that personally. Yeah. Uh, the, the last thing I'd like to say about um, dad, you know, mom said that he was really good when I was struggling as a teenager and, and beyond. And, um, that is true. I went through a period senior year in high school where I uh, basically didn't sleep Mm -hmm. for a few months and he would come into my bedroom and had like a cot on the floor and he would stay up and talk to me. Before that, we had really had a lot of struggles in a way that really helped us to overcome some of the teenage angst that I had had uh, towards him. I remember a few years later apologizing to Dad for how I had treated him for periods of my youth, mm-hmm. and he he's like, "Well, thank you, but uh, you know I've forgiven you a long time ago." Mm-hmm. Type of response, and I'll. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget how matter of fact he was and and, and just mm-hmm. showing how much he'd loved me through all of that and the understanding yeah. he'd had as I went through that period of life. And that really shows the healthy family trait that yeah. you know that that I mentioned, you know, they and 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 that and also the domino effect cuz then that built up a uh, the way he treated you when you were having a hard time as a teen and and his disclosure 
yet with discretion laid a foundation for you and your children. And you talk about that on the episode yeah. a little bit about um, how it was really just kind of very ca- casual almost that, you know, they, they didn't react mm-hmm. uh, negatively when you shared the news with them at the appropriate time. Right. Yeah. So glad to have Bruce and Sally Riddle on the show. Thanks. The good doctor. The Rippy Riddle tradition continues and the legacy lives on here at uh, Revealing Voices. Yes. Tony, our show has come to a close. Now is the time to ask for five-star reviews. Please scroll to the bottom of our podcast homepage, click on five stars, then click on write a review. Help us reach more people seeking emotional healing and the hope of faith. Thanks again for your support of Revealing Voices. Revealing Voices is not a substitute for professional mental health care or participation in a faith community. If your unanswered questions or unanswered prayers leave you feeling desperate or unsafe, we urge you to seek further help. A partial list of outreach resources may be found on our website, revealingvoices.com. I'm not going to tell you what's right to your wife. <laughs> just, just that it arrest. Tony's a ghostwriter writing uh, on behalf of me to Jen. No, no, no.